All right, everybody, welcome. The clock has struck seven, so it's time for us to strike the Word of God or be struck by the Word of God, however you want to look at it. So welcome back, Bible scholars. Awesome to see you again uh, here with your Bibles open, your workbooks open, ready to dig into the Word of God. Uh, so cool to see. Also, welcome uh, how many ever of you are watching online. Uh, we're glad you're with us as well. I continue to hear all the time how you all appreciate the opportunity to be able to have this online and the technology there. So uh, we appreciate you too. I'm glad you are with us. All right, so we are today going to finish off this little mini parenthesis that we are in. Remember, we talked about Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. It's sort of this little interlude in the middle of Paul's letter to the Romans. And so we'll conclude that today with these great this is great concept that God always keeps his promises. So it's going to be really awesome what St. Paul does. He's going to point back to history, and he's going to use the nation of Israel as an example of how God is faithful, even though they oftentimes weren't. God is still faithful and keeps his promises. And then he applies that to us and says, hey, everybody, guess what? God is faithful to you, too, even though there are times... A lot of times when you don't keep your promises, God always keeps his promises, right? So again, we're going to just, I, I just want to remind you that and get my prayer always in our study as we are working through Romans, that it's not just like a, a historical kind of a study for you. It's not just about things that happened in the past, but it's a living word, a living document. It applies to you, you know, that it changes the way you think about God, the way you think about your purpose in the world. So uh, we're going to learn from the nation of Israel, and as we learn from them, we're going to see a lot of ourselves and how God treats us and works with us still to this day. Have you been feeling that as we've been working through Romans? It's not just about those folks 2,000 years ago, but God is hitting you smack between the eye. Yes, is he? Good, good. That means he's doing his work. The Holy Spirit is at it. All right, so let's pray and get ready for God's Holy Spirit to guide and lead us in our study. Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for another Tuesday. Uh, thank you for Tuesday, Lord, to be able to be together in your word, to learn, to grow, uh, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, and to, again, just be awed by um, the amazing God that you are and how you love us so and sent your son Jesus into our lives to, to um, be faithful, even though we're not, and to love us and forgive us and give us the hope of eternal life. So as we study today, uh, we pray that we would just take heart in your faithfulness, God, and and um, just rely on it and be and to live in it and be strengthened by it every day. So bless us as we learn, as we share, as we grow in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I need you all to do one thing for me. Some of your books do not have lesson thirty and following; they stop at twenty-nine. So will you check your study books? Somehow in the printing, some of the books stop at 29. So will you check if you have 30 and following? And if yours stops at 29, will you raise a hand so I can make copies for you? One, two, just a couple. That's really weird. I wonder how that happened. All right, so I'll have copies for those of you who don't have 30 and following for when we get together next week. All right, you ready to dig in? Let's do this. Let's start again by just a review of where we are in the structure of this beautiful book, the book of Romans. 
I call it the great parentheses of Romans 9 through 11. Remember, we already spent time in the first eight chapters where there was a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine. Uh, we learned that we're broken and sinful. We've learned that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we've had that great but now. Remember that? But now a righteousness has been revealed apart from the law that comes to us through Jesus Christ. We've learned that we are declared righteous. We are justified by God because of what Jesus, eight chapters of just talking about our sin, our brokenness, and what God did about it by sending Jesus. The last five chapters, we're going to get into the real practical stuff. Like next week, by the way, is going to be a great lesson. We're going to talk about how is it possible to know God's will. Hmm, doesn't that sound good? Anybody ever wrestle with, is this God's will or not? That's next week. So you're getting to some real practical things. But now we're in the middle. These, these three chapters in the middle. Chapter 9, 10, and 11. And you remember we said we could kind of look at these three chapters in little chunks. Chapter 9 talks about Israel's past. Chapter 10 talks about their present. Chapter 11 talks about Israel's future. But remember we said it's not really about the nation of Israel. I mean, it is, but it's so much more than that, right? Really what we're learning here is about God's character and how God works in our world. And so we talked in chapter 9 about how God chose or selected Israel. And what did we learn about that? We learned that God is sovereign, that God is able to do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it. We said that day, that lesson, we said, how odd of God to choose the Jews, remember? You know, why of all the people would he have chosen them? What did they do to deserve it? Why were they special? And what did we say? They weren't. But God in his sovereignty can choose and use whoever or whatever he pleases to accomplish his plan and purpose. So it really wasn't about Israel's past. We learned about God choosing them by grace and God's sovereignty to work through all things to accomplish his plan, right? And you all knew that. I shouldn't even reboot it because it's all stuck right in your head, right? All right, chapter 10, then we said we talked about Israel's present, St. Paul does. They're where they are now. And what happened to that beautiful choosing? What did they do with God choosing them and the gift that he gave them? They rejected it. They pushed it away. They rejected him. But really, it's not about Israel, is it? It's about God's character. What does God do when people reject him? Does he turn his back on them? Does he stop working in their behalf? Does he stop loving them? No, he doesn't. He continues to love and care. He is still fair in giving grace to every single person. Right? It doesn't change. We learn about God that he is fair and he brings that grace to all people. Uh, and so we learn really about God's character in that. And now today we'll talk about Israel's future. Right? And we're going to hear that it's not really about future. It's about God keeping his promises and restoring what was broken, right? Returning uh, people back to the family of God. So we'll learn today about his faithfulness. Isn't St. Paul a master? Really, have, as we've been reading and learning in this book, the structure in this book, have you been awed just by the plan and the purpose and uh, the, the, beauty, the beauty of the structure of this book is just, it's breathtaking, isn't it? So we see how Paul is working in these little parentheses, these three chapters. So now let's get into chapter 11. It really all starts, this section, this, this chapter, begins with this verse from 11, Romans 11.1. 11, in the NIV text, which is what maybe most of us have, it says, I asked them, did God reject his people? 
And what's his answer? By no means. So really, he's when you when you hear this, so I ask them. See, we're learning that St. Paul does this a lot. He builds on what he's already done. So he says, now, remember all that we've talked about. Remember the position of the Jews and the rejection of the nation of Israel. And because they've rejected God, right? Now I just need to ask the question, did God reject them? Because they rejected God, did God reject them? And St. Paul says, by no means. Sometimes I really love just looking at other translations of the Greek because it just gives you a little bit of a different idea. The New Living Translation translates it, I ask them, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. Notice how I bold these, these answers, the, the, the rhetorical answer to the rhetorical question. The third one, does this mean then from the Message Bible that God is so fed up with Israel that he'll have nothing more to do with them? Hardly. Or the King James Version, for some of you who want to go back to the official translation of the Bible, right? I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. Or the God's Word translation, so I ask, has God rejected his people Israel? That's unthinkable. You look at all those bold words, right? You can see St. Paul is pretty clear. He he throws up a question that he knows the answer to, right? It's a rhetorical question. God would never reject his people. God would never turn his back. God will never get so fed up with them that he, you know, doesn't give them a chance to come and know and believe. God will never cast them away. God will never reject them. Heaven forbid, right? So this verse then is sort of the setup for the whole rest of the chapter. Now that he's said that, now he's going to prove it, right? Now he's going to give us the evidence why we can believe this is true. He doesn't just throw a statement out there. We've learned this about St. Paul, right? He backs it up with evidence or proof that helps us understand the statement. So then we need to ask, then why are they set apart? How are they set apart? And we're going to see a couple things. First, he's going to argue that the setting aside of Israel is only partial. It's not complete. So if you're filling in in your, your outline, your student manual, right there, you see those two blanks. The setting aside of Israel, says St. Paul, the rejection of Israel is partial. It's not complete. And he's going to offer up these three proofs for us. He's going to say that he himself is the proof. He's going to say there is a remnant. And he's going to say that they were chosen by God's grace in the first place. So don't panic. We're going to look at each one of these three like right now you're going, dang, I didn't have a chance to write that all down. But don't panic. We're looking at each of the three. We're going to start with the first. Paul uses himself as proof, right, that God doesn't reject, that God has not outright cast out the nation of Israel. So he says, look, verse 11, verse 1, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abram from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says if God had given up on Israel, then he wouldn't be a believer right? He's using his own life because he's a Jew. He's a Jew of, of the descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. So first off, he just says he states the obvious. God hasn't given up on Israel because there are Jewish believers like me, he says, right? So uh, he's an example that not all of the Jews have been cast aside. Pretty obvious, right? But then he says that there is a remnant, 
Again, has God rejected all the nation of Israel? Paul says no, because there is a remnant. How did he put it? In verses 2 to 5, chapter 11, he said, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? This is from 1 Kings 19. How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? Now remember, you need to couch this in the question. Has God rejected his people? What is, what's God's answer to Elijah? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, says St. Paul, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So do you see what Paul is saying? In the Old Testament, right, we have this beautiful story where God reserved a remnant, 7,000 people. And Paul says, even today, God still has a remnant of the nation of Israel who have not bowed their knee, who have be, remained faithful to the Lord. Yeah. A kinship with Elijah. I think he felt uh, a commonality, if that's what you mean, right? They had shared a common bond, a bond that the people of Israel were rebelling against him. And Paul was holding the faith. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I think it's so... Um, a remnant, by the way, means a small remaining quantity of something. I thought it we could... You know, this whole thing that Paul quotes is Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You know, uh, in this remnant, do you know the story of that? It is so awesome, right? I, I thought that uh, it would be good if I just read this to you again. It's one of my favorite stories. I don't want to assume that you know the story here about what's going on. But Elijah was being pursued by Jezebel, who was just an evil queen and the king. And uh, there was a big God contest that was going to take place between the prophets of the, the idol Baal, the false god Baal, and the God of the Old Testament. So let me just read to you from 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, a little bit of this beautiful story. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So it is really you, you troublemaker of Israel. So you can see what the king thought about the prophet of God. I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers. For you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon to Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel to the prophets and all the prophets to Mount Carmel. Can you just get the picture? It's Elijah versus these 850 prophets of these false gods. And all of Israel standing around watching this great God contest that's going to happen. Ooh, this sounds good, doesn't it? So Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, 
then follow him. But the people were completely silent. So Elijah said to them, It looks like I'm the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, bring two bowls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of the altar, but without setting fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood on the other altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Do you think so? I bet they sat down and said, this is going to be good. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first because there's many of you. Choose one of the bulls, prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced and danced, hobbling around the altar that they had made. At about noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You're going to have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or is relieving himself. Zing, huh? Or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. So they all shouted louder. And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until blood gushed out. And they raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. And they all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. And he took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel. And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. And then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold gallons of water. And he piled wood on the altar. And he cut the bull into pieces and laid the pieces on the wood. Ooh. Then he said, Fill four large jars with water and pour the water over all of the offering and all of the wood. And after they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. And so they did as he said. And all the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench around the altar. And at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from the heavens and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, even the dust. And it licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Oh yes, the Lord is God. 
Is that a great story? Right? That's just First uh, Kings chapter 18. So, see, St. Paul now takes this story that they all know, right, uh, about what, what, what you didn't hear is after this story, uh, Elijah runs and cries out to God that he's the only one left, that no one believes, right? Uh, but God said, uh-uh, there is a remnant of 7,000 people still who worship me, who believe you're not the only one, right? Have you ever heard of the Elijah syndrome before? The Elijah syndrome, people ever say that? That's like when you feel like you're the only one. You know, when you're the only one. Poor me. I'm the only one that knows. I'm the only one that understands. I'm the only one that gets this. I'm the only one that's faithful. Whoa. What do I always say? Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Oh. <laughs> All right, so that's Elijah syndrome. But God says, no. No, there's a remnant. There always has been a remnant. There always will be a remnant, says St. Paul. So has God turned his back on the Israelites? Mm-mm. He hasn't then, and he still hasn't now. There is a remnant. All right, third. The third evidence or proof that he gives us about the uh, not rejecting is that they were chosen by grace. He said it this way, verses 5 and 6. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant and how did that remnant come? Chosen by grace. And if it by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So what's the point he's trying to make? He said, remember why God chose the Jews in the first place. It was grace. Not because they earned it. Not because they deserved it. Not because they performed. Because they kept the law. No, no, no. It was always by grace that they were chosen. And... If the Jews were not chosen by their performance, then they don't lose their position based on their performance. It's not about performance. Do you see what he's saying? Do we not know this from our Roman study by now? Are you like sick and tired of hearing this? It's not about works, right? It's not. It's not about performance. So they're still saved because it's not about their performance. It's about God and his performance and his love for them in Christ. Amen? All right, so he gives them these three proofs for uh, why they're saved. So, you know, some people would say that because they rejected God, then God no, had no responsibility to keep his promises to them, right? Some would say that, that since they turned their back on God, God has every right to turn his back on them. Some would say that, right? But what does God say? Let's look at some verses, right? I need you to open your Bibles here. Jeremiah chapter 31. I got lazy and didn't want to type all these out. I heard one of you say once, you don't worry, you need to bring your Bible to class. He types everything up on the screen. So now I'm going to start making you look so you have to open your Bibles. Jeremiah chapter 31. Now remember, we're talking about does God, does God feel any responsibility to keep his promises? Does God have any promises for the, for the nation of Israel? Check out these verses 31 to 35. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt 
because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And here's my favorite part of this verse. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Isn't that a great verse? That's one you got to highlight in your Bible, everybody, right? I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So some say that God, because they turn their back on him, that God turns his back on them. What would this verse say? Not true at all, right? Even though they have turned their back, he will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Flip down just a couple verses to verse 37. He builds on this in this chapter 31, verse 37. And I love this. He says, Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject the descendants of Israel. What has to happen before God will reject the descendants of Israel? You would have to be able to count every star in the sky and every grain of sand in the foundation of the earth. If you could do that and get it right, that's about the same odds of God rejecting his people. You get it? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, is it? It's just not going to happen. God is faithful. Some might say God's not faithful, that God doesn't have to keep his promise. That's not what God says. All right, Psalm 89. Flip in your Bible there, please. Psalm 89, verse 30. I love the sound of those Bible pages turning. Psalm 89, beginning with verse 30. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their injury with flogging, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Do you hear God saying, I'm not going to lie. I am not going to say one thing and then not finish what I started. God will never break a promise, will he? God will never be unfaithful to us. He will not violate the covenant that he has uttered with his own lips. Sure, there will be consequences for their rejection. Did he see? Did you hear that there? Right? There'll be consequences, but what will never happen is his love removed from them. What will never happen is that he will fail on his promise to include them in the salvation that Jesus Christ would win for them. Do you see this? Right? 
So some may say that God has turned his back on them, but that's not what God says. That's not what the word teaches us. He will never uh, betray or be unfaithful to his promise. So in my mind, Israel then is the example of God's faithfulness. It's the penultimate example of God's faithfulness. Even when they were unfaithful, God was faithful to them. Do you see what a beautiful example Israel is to us? You can reject him. You can turn your back on him. You can persecute him. You can follow other false gods. And sure, there'll be consequences for your rejection, but he will never turn his back. He will never stop loving. He will never stop giving opportunity after opportunity for you to turn, repent, and come to the Lord. Come to know and love him. Amen? And now, why is that good news for you? And Hello? Right? Whenever we do the same, whenever we turn our back, whenever we run our own way, whenever we fail, can we ever just like use up God's grace? Can we ever, has he, will he ever say, you know, you guys, you've reached your limit, right? Your quota, you know, you're, you're done. You're, my love, you've, there's no more chance. It'll never happen, will it? Just like it didn't for them, it won't for us. Never will he unfaithful or turn his back on us. Some say, but not God. Get it? All right. So we said the setting aside of Israel's only partial, not complete. Now St. Paul is going to say the second thing. The setting aside of Israel is only temporary, not complete. So he says this in 11. 11 Again, I ask. He's going back to the original 11.1 verse. He's saying, now again, I'm going to ask it. Did they stumble so far as to fall beyond recovery? What's his answer? Not at all. So why were they set aside? We're going to look at a couple reasons, right, that St. Paul is going to teach us. Let's look at, um, i got to get to the right place here, um, Romans chapter 11. Starting with verse 11, please. 11, 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. And then he says this, rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So one of the reasons that they were set aside is because it allowed the grace and the salvation of God to come to the non-Jewish people. That's with the Gentiles, right? So this is how God rules. He does this all the time, doesn't he? He takes a bad and he uses it to do a great good. He takes something that doesn't look like any good can come from it and he turns it into a, even a mon, unimaginable good. So the, the nation of Israel, remember we talked about this, they were given this responsibility that, that God chose them for a reason. Do you remember that? That was two weeks ago. That God chose them, that they would be the ones to be a light in the darkness. They would be the ones to share the good news of God with all the nations. That was their job, their role, their responsibility. So when they failed, then God turned to another, right? Their failure allowed that good news to go to the Gentiles. And then this is an interesting phrase. He says in verse 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And then listen, to make Israel envious. Why did God set them aside? So that they would become envious. 
Now, don't mix up the word envious with jealous. Usually when we hear envious, we hear jealous. It's different. Envious means when you desire, want something. See, here's the way I think of this. this here's an example that I think is what Paul is thinking. Imagine that you're a servant at a golf club. Uh, you know, uh, a golf... No, no, no. What's it called when you're a golf resort, a golf... Uh, a country club. Thank you. You can tell I'm not in one. <laughs> you're, you're, you're at a golf country club, and you're one of the servants that's cooking, preparing the meals, getting ready for a big banquet. So you work hard all day. You get the food laid out on the table. It's this beautiful spread, the richest and finest of foods. And the folks show up for the meal, but then they decide they want to get a quick round of golf in. So they walk out. They leave all the food on the table, and they just walk out to get around the golfing. So the owner of the country club comes and says, sees all the food that's there and says, I don't want all this food to go to waste. So, hey, all you servants, all you cooks, you all come on in and sit down and eat of the finest of foods. So while you're all sitting down eating the food, he closes and locks the door. So the folks come back from their golf and they look in the wind and they go, what? They're eating all our food. I want that food. I wish I had that food. I'm envious that they're eating the food that was given to me. That's what St. Paul is saying here, right? The Jews are envious that the Gentiles are eating their food. The gospel, the good news, salvation and grace is coming to the Gentiles, and God is using their rejection to actually make them envious and want what they rejected. How genius is God? Right? He just knows how we work. Why is it that the things we like the best are the things that we can't have? Or you know, the things that we've lost. So St. Paul says, listen, why were they set aside so the Gentiles could be saved? And God's even going to use that setting aside to make them envious, to make them want to come back. And then the third thing he says is that he, they were set aside to open a new channel of blessing to the world, to the church. Look at verse 13. He said, I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if, they, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So because the Israelites weren't doing their job, God has given their job to the Gentiles, and a whole new way of bringing the good news into the world is introduced. We've talked about this, right? Now the way God works to bring the good news is not through the nation of Israel, but who's the new nation of Israel? You and I, the church. The church is the new nation of Israel. We're the ones now who have been given the task of going and sharing the responsibility that they had in the Old Testament now belongs to the church. See, through their rejecting, being set aside, God opened up a whole new way for the good news message of God's love and grace and forgiveness to be brought to the world through each and every one of us, the new Israel. How cool is that? Almost like God's got a plan here. Like he's working to do stuff here. Do you see? So Paul is just great about explaining to us, you know, 
um, why it is that they were set aside. The next thing then he asks is, what should be our attitude then toward Israel? So those of us who are being saved, you know, what's the attitude that we should have toward them? Here's what he said. He uses an olive tree and olive branches as an example. He says that some of the branches have been broken off. And you, the wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You don't support the root, but the root supports you. You see, what is it? Paul is saying here that our heritage as Christians comes from the Jews. So we dare not boast that we're better. We dare not boast that, you know, we have God's grace and they don't. We dare not do that because we're the wild shoots, <laughs> the wild branches that were grafted into them. So don't boast. And then he says, don't be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Eek. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Right? But do you see the point Paul's trying to make? Don't boast. Don't become conceited. Don't think that you're loved and, and included in the, in the beautiful tree of God's family because of your efforts or your work or that you're better than someone else because just like they lost it, you can too. Now, here's an important thing I, about this. Remember, this section is about nation talk. We're not talking about individual talk here. And so, you know, I think I want to apply this to this thing I hear a lot, that America is God's chosen nation. You hear this sometimes, don't you? Well, you know, that's not true. Right? It's, it's not true. We're not America's chosen nation. Anyone can lose it at any moment, just like the Jews did, right? Just This is the warning here. Don't be arrogant. If God didn't spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. America, don't be arrogant and believe just because you call yourselves a Christian nation that you will be blessed by God. It doesn't work that way, does it? It doesn't work that way. How does it work? A nation that believes and trusts in God will be blessed by God. A nation that turns its back on God and rejects God will have the consequences for their rejection, right? That's the way it works. So there's no such thing as a, a chosen nation, a nation that's loved more than another. That ended when Jesus came and that old Israel, the chosen people, a new covenant was formed, the church. All right? Does that make sense, everybody? All right. So uh, how long then is this setting aside going to last? St. Paul's looking at all these questions. Can you just imagine as he's writing this, he's anticipating what everyone's going to say. All right, so I get it. They're set aside. But how long will they be set aside? What does St. Paul answer? He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. How long was the setting apart going to last until the full number of Gentiles comes in. Well, when is that going to happen? How long before the full Gentiles are brought into the family of God? That's right, when Christ returns. 
It's not until Jesus comes again that that's when that number is going to be determined. I don't know that number. I don't think you know that number. I don't think anyone knows that number. I think Jesus said that not even the angels know that number, right? But the day is going to come. God knows that number when he will return again. And the full number of Gentiles will be brought into the church. And the full number of believing Jewish folks, the Old Testament people of God, will also be brought into the family of God, grafted into the tree for eternity. Get it? So when will that happen? Second coming. What's ultimately going to happen when that happens? Right? What's going to happen when that return of Christ comes? He said, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, and this is, he quotes from Isaiah 59, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Ooh, I like these words. Here's another great promise in the Old Testament about what's going to happen when Jesus comes and returns the family together again. He says, I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Do you know when Zechariah was written? Like 500 B.C., 500 years before Jesus. And what do we hear? A prophecy that a time is going to come when all people, Jews, Gentiles alike, will look on the one who was pierced. What is that in that reference to? Right? The cross, the crucifixion. Right? They will look to him and will grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. It's going to happen when Christ returns, when they see Christ, when he gathers the family again together. And I think the best example of all of what's going to happen when Jesus returns, you ready for this? Ezekiel 37, the story of the dry bones. Again, I don't want to assume that you know all of this story, so I'm going to read to you again these beautiful words from Ezekiel 37. He's given the vision of a valley that is full of old, dried-out bones. You can see a little bit of what that might have looked like here in this picture. So let me read to you the Word of God from Ezekiel 37. Remember, you're listening about what happens when Christ returns to bring back the Jews, the Gentiles, all of us into the family of God. The Lord took hold of me, said Ezekiel, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. And he led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. And then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? Oh, sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, Speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, Dry bones? Listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly as I spoke, 
there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then I watched and muscles and flesh formed over the bones. The skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. Then he said to me, Speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bones so they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me. And breath came into their bodies. And they all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. Then he said to me, and this is the best part, if you ask me, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people. I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, O my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done what I have said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. Ooh, isn't that good stuff? The valley of dry bones. So what are we saying about this? What is ultimately going to happen? The day is going to come when Jesus returns. And he's going to put together the nation of Israel, just like he's going to put together the Gentiles. All who believe in him, the remnant who has not bowed the knee, will come and receive grace and the gift of eternal life and forgiveness. Is that good news? Isn't it, though? Right? So that's what we know is going to happen ultimately. Now, if you're following back in Romans, right, Paul is right now so beside himself with joy. I mean, just imagine where he started. You remember in chapter 9, at the very beginning, he's like, oh, if I could die, if I could give my life, if I could give up eternity and spend the rest of eternity in hell, but my brother's in the faith, could know the Lord, I would do it. Now, after showing us all the reasons why God loves them, why God gives them the opportunity, why there's still a remnant, while they can still be saved, he just can't hold it in anymore. And he's got this great word of praise here in verses 33 to 36. He just bursts into praise, doesn't he? He can't help himself. He says, oh, the depth and the riches, and the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Can you hear his heart? He's like, thank you, God. I know they didn't deserve it. I know they turned their back on them. I know it looked hopeless. I know that we were like a valley of dry, dead, nothing bones. But you, in your unsearchable grace and goodness and love, have figured out a way to include even those who have turned their backs on you. Right? 
Do you hear it in his voice? He cannot help himself. He praises God for his faithfulness and for um, uh, being faithful and true to his people. Is that the best ever, you all? Right? Best ever. Best news. So I want to close then with these seven things that I think we can learn from the faithfulness of God. Right? Oh, question? He's coming with your mic. Thank you, Mark. When I was reading the um, the information, the Bible, and all, I got the impression that Elijah had the remnant of people. Paul talks about the remnant that he had, okay, or that was there. Then I started to think about the church now. Are we the remnant? If things are, the way things are going in this country and all over the world, yeah, we're, I think then, yeah, that's fair. We are the new remnant, the believers. Believers. The ones whom God has to, held close to him, that's us. And can do something to change it. For sure. For sure. Okay. Tell the good news, share the word. Okay. Agreed. Yeah, I like that. New remnant. That sounds cool. You want to be the new remnant with me? We are that. Yep. Anyone else a question while Mark's here with the mic? All right, let's do these last seven things you can count on because of God's faithfulness. Right Here's the, the Lutheran, what does this mean section. Right, God is faithful to the nation of Israel. God is faithful to us. Do you know how much of the Bible talks about God's faithfulness? Do you know how much of the New Testament are these encouraging words that no matter how bad it gets, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter what you're feeling, no matter what grief you are under, that God's faithfulness will be there for you. I just want to, I just picked out seven of my favorite verses that talk about God's faithfulness. Seven things you can count on. Number one, God is faithful to me and will keep his promises. Right, this verse from Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Right, so what's this mean? God is faithful and will keep his promise. You just got to know that if God makes a promise in the Bible, it's not conditional. It's not a maybe it will come true or a might happen. If God makes a promise, it's going to happen. So think of all the beautiful promises in the Bible for you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. God is faithful. This means he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you promise Jesus said, I'm going to go to my father's house where there are many rooms. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me where I am. That's a promise. I mean, and if God is faithful, that means that promise is going to come true. It's not a maybe or a question mark. It's a promise, right? So we just need to remember the faithfulness that we see illustrated to the nation of Israel is lived out in our lives every day. God is faithful and will keep his promises. Amen? That's a good number one. Number two, God is faithful to me no matter what. That's also important. The faithfulness of God is not dependent on me. Do you get this? Right? Here's what it says in 1 Timothy. If we are faithless... God will turn his back on us and never talk to us again. Is that what it says? If we are faithless, 
he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. What, what Paul is saying to Timothy is he's saying God is just so true, he cannot be untrue. God is so faithful, he cannot be unfaithful. And so it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter your behavior or your performance because it doesn't change God. He is always faithful no matter what because he needs to stay true to himself. On your good days, is God faithful? On your bad days, is God faithful? On your good hair days, is God faithful? On your bad hair days, is God faithful? Do you see the point? He is always faithful to you no matter what. That's our amazing God. All right, third, what God started in me, he will finish. 1 Thessalonians 5, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. What did we say to sanctify means? To be made holy. Remember, to be made holy. The process of growing in our Christ-likeness. The process of being more and more the child of God that he wants us to be. Right? So, may the God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this. The one who calls you will do it. So I always say, God's not finished with me yet. Right? Do you know what I mean by that? He is still, I'm a work, I am a work in progress. He is still rubbing off a lot of rough edges. He's still teaching. He's still forgiving. He's still rounding. He's still leading, you know. It, but the good news is, what he started, I know he's going to finish. You know, he's never going to say, your, your progress is too slow, man. I'm just getting so frustrated with you. I'm out of here. You're not going to hear that from God. What he starts, he will finish. Why? Because he is faithful. You get it? Right? What God started, he will finish. These three would be good enough, but there's still four more. Right? Let's look at the next five. Or number four. God will strengthen and protect you. 2 Thessalonians 3, the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. You know, I didn't get this until I was putting this, this PowerPoint, this study together. This, it never dawned on me, this verse, I've heard it a million times, but it never dawned on me. I always focused in on God will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. That's why I love that verse. But you know what all of a sudden grabbed me? Look what comes first. This, it never dawned on me. The Lord is faithful. And because he's faithful to me, what does he do? He strengthens and protects me from the evil one. His strength and protection from me grows out of his faithfulness. It's not because I've done something or I've earned it or I cry out for help. It's just because he's faithful. And this is what this faithful God does. He strengthens me and he protects me from the evil one. Right? This is a promise. Because of God's faithfulness, we are strengthened and protected. Mark, we need the mic. So, I don't know, that was just an aha moment for me about this flowing out of it's right up here. Arlo. Back it up one. Here's your mic. It says what God's, God has started. When did he start at 
baptism? Um, okay, if you couldn't hear, he said, when did God start this work of sanctification in us? Um, it certainly starts at baptism. Now, in my mind, I'm just thinking, does God's, I think it starts from the moment of conception. That's where I'm going to go, right? This starting, you know, even if you're not baptized, even if you're not a believer, I think God is still working. You know, it's different once we're a believer, once we're baptized. It's a different way that he works, but good question, Earl. I'm just thinking that at baptism, he comes into us. Yes, for sure. So therefore, we are with Christ then. Yes, we are. Yep. So it's, it's certainly something different happens once we're baptized. God works in a different way. But I still think he's, um, he, uh, he's working even on those who don't believe to bring them to belief and faith. Yeah, that's a good question. All right, we talked this fourth, number five. God will help you overcome temptation. Why? Because God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Because God is faithful, notice what it did not say. It did not say he will never let you be tempted. It said what? He will not tempt you more than you can bear. So temptations in life are a reality in this broken world, right? God never says that there will be no temptations. But he says when you are tempted, because he is faithful, he will be with you so that you can bear up under it. And don't miss the last part. He will always provide a way out. What does that mean, a way out of temptation? I, I, this, I just believe this with all my heart and soul. You will never, ever face a situation where there is not an opportunity to do the right thing. God will always, always provide an opportunity to do the right thing. Now, that right thing might hurt a lot. It might cost a lot. It might mean a sacrifice of some sort or another. But there will always, always be an opportunity to do the right thing. That's what this promise means. God will always provide a way out of the temptation to do the right thing. So, Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. That doesn't work, does it? Right? The devil cannot, you know, put you in a place where you have no options but to sin. This just doesn't work that way. God will always, always provide a way out. Always, always provide an opportunity to do the right thing. And because he is faithful, he will be with you along the way. He's coming. Thank you, Mark. Uh, what's the difference between just people that are evil and people that are mentally, you know, something's mentally wrong with their brain? And they do bad things. I mean, there are those people. 
So what's the difference, do you mean? Yeah, yeah. And like they can't help themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. So sin is sin no matter what. Evil is evil no matter what. But what you're asking is about personal culpability, personal responsibility. So someone who is not mentally able to make good decisions can still do evil, but I don't believe that they're culpable for that evil because they can't help it. Whereas someone who is evil, who makes a decision or a choice to do evil, it's a different thing. They are held accountable. They are culpable for their actions. And only God knows that. For sure. Only God knows that. But evil is still evil. It's still evil. It's still broken. It still has bad consequences. But one is culpable and the other isn't. It would be my thought. Okay. Mm -hmm. Where in the world did that come from? <laughs> Personal things. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Look who she lives with. <laughs> Now we know. All right, so God is faithful. So listen, if you're feeling the weight of temptation, if you're feeling the struggle of doing the right thing versus just doing what everyone else is doing, going with the crowd, believing what everyone else is believing, listen, I feel that every day. You know, that pressure we're under nowadays to just buckle under and just believe what everyone else is believing and do what everyone else is doing. If you're feeling that temptation, listen, you're not alone. God is faithful. And this faithful God will be with you to help you, right? So, so you can bear up under it and always give you an opportunity to do or say the right thing. You get it? That's the good news. God is faithful. All right, number six. God can be counted on to forgive my sins. If we forgive our God is faithful and just I mean, that's obvious, or is it? You know, there's this thing called guilt. We've been talking about that the last couple Sunday I preached on guilt. Uh, the, yes, today the Lent thing is a guilt thing. You know, what is guilt really? Guilt is saying I'm not forgiven. Guilt is saying that I've done something that I need to be punished for because the price needs to be paid. You know, guilt, guilt says I'm not forgiven. Right? A faithful God says, yes, you are. Your faithful God says you can count on God to forgive every sin. That's the God we worship. Right? So don't feel guilty. Maybe you've heard me say this before. Jesus was already crucified for your sins. So stop crucifying yourself. Right? If we do that, what we're saying is that I don't want your forgiveness. God, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be a martyr. I'm going to take it on myself. I'm going to punish myself when the punishment has already been paid in full. This is a great verse that God can be counted on to forgive your sins. So give it to him. Cast your burdens on him. Lay it at the foot of the cross and leave it and go into this new beautiful life that God has for you, guilt-free, loving God and being loved by him. But that's a great promise, right? The faithful God. Number seven, God will use hardship 
to build up my character. I didn't know if I should put that one there or not, because it's kind of like, thank you, sir, may I have another. But look at the verse, 1 Peter 4. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Our faithful God works even through the difficulties and challenges, doesn't he? You know, it's, it's just not, God is not just there in the good times, but he's there in the hard times too. So often when people struggle, they say, where's God? And what does that great footprints kind of uh, poem say about that? Right? When you only see one set of footprints, it's easy to go, God's abandoned me. But what's really happened? God's picked you up. He's this faithful God is carrying you. So, you know, the reminder from Peter, who knew suffering, Peter says, when you suffer, Commit yourselves to your creator and continue to do good. And God will work through that to accomplish good in your life. Don't you love it? Seven beautiful things that you can count on your faithful God to do for you as you walk through life with him. Thoughts, questions? Luther used hardship to build his character? He sure did. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he meant self-imposed hardship <laughs> like that. I think he's talking about life. All right. I want to close with this prayer together, if that's all right. So I think we've learned a lot about how God treated the nation of Israel, how he still treats us today. He was faithful then. He is faithful now, and he will be faithful forever. So will you join me as together we lift up these prayers? Just Join me. If you can read it, read it with me. Father, we thank you for the example of the nation of Israel we find in the book of Romans. This is the ultimate example of your faithfulness. Lord, let your faithfulness to us be a motivating force that we might be faithful to you. I thank you that our salvation is not dependent upon continuing to perform because none of us could be perfect. We all fall short. But thank you for your grace, your beautiful grace to me and all people. In Jesus' saving name we pray and end our night. Amen. Next week, we'll talk about God's will and how we can know and understand it. Come loaded and ready for the word. God's blessings, everyone. We'll see you again.